0: Good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. I'm excited to be with you on this Sunday morning as we worship together across YouTube and Facebook. Uh, It's good to see you. It's good to see you every week when we pop into the Facebook comments. And so today, as I am unpacking the first installment in our new teaching series called Why Church, I just want to encourage you, as usual, to jump into your Facebook comments and say hello to each other, encourage each other, uh, offer to pray for each other, Uh, This is a difficult time for us to be worshiping together as a church in a socially distant way. And so popping into your comments on Facebook or YouTube is a great way for you to connect. Well, we are going to jump into our new series. Like I said, today is our first installment in a series that's going to take several weeks. And this series is called Why Church?, Because I want to ask the question together as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary, why it is with today's great disillusionment with church and disillusionment with religious institutions and institutions of all kinds in America, why is it that anybody would still choose to go to church in the midst of all of that? And I want to explore this series right now because many of you know that we are currently engaged at this time in a process of of reimagining our mission, our vision, our values, and priorities as a church. We've asked a lot of you to jump on our listening sessions and provide us with some feedback. And over the next two to, to three months, we're going to be engaged in that whole process of really trying to discern what direction God is leading us as a church for the next three years. And so while we're doing that, I want us to take time to jump into Scripture and really explore what it is that the Church is doing in the New Testament to partner with the Spirit of God, and how that is creating new movement and new opportunities, new ways for the kingdom of God to break into the world that we read about in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. And then, of course, we're going to ask ourselves throughout this series the question, what does that mean for us now in the 21st century? How can we discern what the Spirit of God is doing, and how can we partner with God so that our church can be a movement for good in our community? We're going to jump in today with the first installment of that from John chapter 3, so we're going to open our Bibles to John chapter 3 and read the first 10 verses there, but before we do, I want to invite you just to take a moment, calm your heart, calm your mind, let's pray and ask God to be with us as we read these words. Would you just join me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together this morning. We ask that as we read from the Gospel of John, that you would speak to our hearts that we would gain a sense of how your spirit is moving in our lives as individuals, as families, and as a congregation at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We ask that you would really teach us how to partner with what you're doing in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools, wherever you put us. We ask that you'd make us people who are ready to act Uh, with our will in a way that partners with the good things that you're doing in people's lives. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, one of the things that I really uh, used to love to do, I had a hobby that my dad introduced me to. He used to make model airplanes, and he made model airplanes that were called free-flight airplanes, there were planes made out of balsa wood and the wings of those planes were wrapped in uh, like tissue paper that was applied uh, with, you know, like uh, a chemical that helped it to, to stick to the ribs of the wings and stretch tight so that it'd be aerodynamic. And then you, know, you put a little engine on that and then you start up the engine and you send it off to fly. And the whole purpose of that particular way of Uh, of flying airplanes was to see how long your plane could stay up in the air. Well, I was a really little kid when my dad used to do this as a hobby. It wasn't just my dad, my my father, uh, my grandfather, and my uncles all used to participate in this particular hobby. And When I was really really little, of course, I, I wanted to join them, but I was too young, I was too small, to build these big planes with these uh, engines on them that were dangerous. And so my dad taught me how to build gliders out of balsa wood when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite things to do. You know, you buy these kits at the hobby store uh, where I was living at the time. In the Riverside San Bernardino area, we'd go to the, the hobby shop and we'd buy these little kits of, of balsa wood airplanes. And then we'd go back home and he would build the big planes, you know, in the garage. And I would sit on the bench next to him and I would make my small gliders. And there was a lot of skill and effort and practice that went into making these gliders. Of course, there were instructions you'd have to like you know cut out the balsa wood in exactly the right shape and you'd have to sand it down so that the wings were in a uh, perfect aerodynamic airfoil so that it would produce lift when the when the glider was was flying through the air and you'd have to glue it all together and you'd have to pin it together until the glue dried and you would have to do it to make sure everything was straight and perfectly aligned it was one of those really perfect hobbies for me as a kid because i was very detail oriented and really like to build things but one of the frustrating things about building these gliders is you know as a kid you would pour all of this time and effort and 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 work into making these models and then you'd pack up one saturday morning you would go out to a big field uh, you know we'd go with my grandfather and my uncles and we'd go to fly and i'd bring a glider that i'd been working on you know usually for weeks until it was ready to go and we'd go out to the field and you know, I was probably eight, nine, ten years old at the time when we would do this. And the idea is, of course, you know, you throw that glider in the air as high as you can. And the purpose is to build these gliders in such a way that they stay in the air as long as possible. So the frustrating thing about building these gliders was not just that you had to build them perfectly in order for them to fly right. That was a matter of skill. That was a matter of effort. And that's something that doesn't frustrate me. I mean, You know, that's a matter of trial and error and practice and work, and I'm good at that. The hard part for me about flying those gliders was that once you threw it up into the air, the one factor, the one thing that determined whether or not your glider would stay in the air for a really long time or would just come down fairly quickly, that one difference, the one factor that made that difference was how much wind there was in that area at that time and what shape or what form that wind took. And so the most critical factor in flying these gliders was something that was completely out of my control. It was nothing that I had anything to do with. The best that I could hope for, the best that I could do was pour myself into making that glider as best that I could and then learn the skill of recognizing what those wind patterns were doing, recognizing thermals, when they would come through the area and recognize the right time for me to throw that glider in the air so that it would get caught in these upward drafts of air and then stay in the air for a very long time. I think that's often true of so much of our lives, that we pour our effort and our work and our practice and our trial and our error into things that are really important to us. And oftentimes, whether they fail or succeed ultimately depends on something that is completely out of our control. Today I want to read to you from John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. I want to share with you how I think this passage in John chapter 3 is similar to my experience making those gliders when I was a kid. John chapter 3, of course, is the story of the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus, who begins a relationship with Jesus. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 3, verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible with you, we'll put the words, of course, right up on the screen for you. It says this, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now now this, I'm just going to pause there uh, in verse 2, end of verse 2 and just point out how remarkable this passage already is. What you have here is Jesus in John's gospel coming into Jerusalem. And right before this scene in John chapter 3, we have the famous scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. So Jesus has, in the beginning of John's gospel, John's gospel moves very fast through Jesus's life. And right at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus performs his miracle at the wedding where he, he turns the water into wine. It's one of the most famous miracles that we uh, remember from the gospels. And then immediately after that, the next thing we know, Jesus is cleansing the temple. Now, this is that famous scene from the other gospels where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he sees the money changers and the money lenders in the temple essentially robbing the people, right? Robbing the people when they come to perform their worship. And Jesus is furious about this. He's incensed. That this thing right the temple system of worship that's been created to offer people a place of mercy a place of worship has now been exploited as a place of profit to take money away from poor farmers and put it into the coffers of the temple he's so angry about that that he goes about making a whip out of cords and he drives people out of the temple he overturns the tables he essentially causes a riot there in the temple courts now Immediately after that, probably the next day, what we see happening is one of the great religious leaders in that area, after Jesus has caused the scene, comes to Jesus. A Pharisee and a member of the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus and he pays him a compliment. He says, hey, we know that you have been sent from God because nobody could perform these miracles if you weren't from God. So that brings us to verse 3. Jesus answers Nicodemus. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, Nicodemus says to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it'd be tempting to think that Nicodemus is just a little bit dense here, right? That Nicodemus doesn't understand a metaphor when he hears it. But one of the things we talk about a lot here at the Oceanside Sanctuary is how the Bible is built to be a kind of dialogue. That the authors of scripture are in dialogue with each other and that that dialogue invites us to be a part of dialogue. And the reason we know that, of course, is because that is a very Jewish way of teaching, a very Jewish way of learning. And of course, Jesus was a first century Jew. And so what we have happening here is Nicodemus not necessarily being dense, not necessarily missing the point, Nicodemus is engaged in a kind of scholarly dialogue with a fellow teacher. He considers Jesus a rabbi, calls him rabbi. And so what he does here is he asks a question so as to begin a dialogue with Jesus. And in asking this question, what are you saying? Are you saying that we can crawl back into our mother's wombs after we have been fully grown. What, what, what Nicodemus is doing is he's asking a question that eliminates an obviously wrong possibility. So here we have this sort of learning debate or a learning dialogue that Nicodemus prompts Jesus with. And Jesus answered him in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, that probably means being born not just of the flesh, Nicodemus, nope, but also born of the spirit. Born from above is the Greek word that's used here. It means not necessarily born again, which is how we often translate it, but rather born from that which is higher, right? Spirit takes on that meaning in this passage. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. And here's where I think Jesus begins to say something really important to Nicodemus about this time. He says, you must be born from above. Verse 8, the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not know these things? Now, Jesus, I think, helps us understand a really important principle here when he utilizes these two metaphors of being born from above or being born of the Spirit. And then when he tries to explain what that means to be born from the Spirit, he uses this metaphor of the wind. And he says something, I think, really important about it he says that the wind is something that we can't see and that we can't control that we don't know where it comes from we don't know where it's going but we can see its effects so just like you know when the wind is blowing and you can see the trees moving you can see you know leaves blowing around you can't see the wind itself but you can see the effects it has you you may not know where it's coming from you may not know where it's going but you can see that it has real power real ability to go somewhere and do something. Now, this is John. right? John's gospel is especially mystical in this way. John's gospel is the gospel that's very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospels that we sometimes call the synoptic gospels because they're so similar. Those First three Gospels are very fleshy. They are, they're sort of born of the dirt. They're born of the earth. The Jesus that's depicted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is a very fleshly Jesus, a very incarnational Jesus, a a kind of down-to-earth Jesus. And that is a, a very Jewish kind of spirituality. But the Gospel of John is different. The Gospel of John is sort of the mystical gospel. The Gospel of John sort of offers an alternative view of Jesus that really utilizes a lot of these metaphors that begin to flesh out something higher, something more spiritual about who Jesus was. The Gospel of John is the Gospel that begins with the famous sentence, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Right, meaning Christ himself. John is the author of the gospel who wants us to see this flesh and blood incarnation of God, not just as another person, but as a person who has been born from above by the Spirit, that there is something transcendent about Jesus. I love the way that Dorothy Sola, the Lutheran uh, mystical theologian, describes mysticism. Sometimes, you know, when you hear that word mysticism, and when I say that the gospel of John is like the mystical gospel, sometimes we think, about sort of very esoteric things or uh, very fantastical uh, occurrences. But that's not really what I mean by that. Dorothy Sola says that mystical simply means a kind of intuitive, emotional orientation to spirituality. And when she says intuitive, emotional, she doesn't mean emotional as a kind of pejorative, which is sometimes how we talk about it today. She means rather intuitive emotional as that place inside of us that is capable of making decisions to act. In other words, mystical really means that part of us that energizes and enlivens our will, specifically our will to act in love towards others or towards the world. And this sort of puts John's gospel uh, in a different place than those who might approach their spirituality in a strictly intellectual way. And that's common for some traditions and some people because of their personality or because of the way that that tradition moves to sort of approach their faith in a strictly kind of analytical way that allows them to reason through their faith. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you can't act in love from a place of reason. Reason and intellect are just as likely to lead you to a place of destruction as it is to lead you to a place of love. And reason alone doesn't bring you to a place where you're able to act. Many people, and I know you know this is true, are able to reason themselves endlessly into a place where they're never able to act in any way at all. And so it's not so much that intuitive, emotional is... Uh, bad, it's that it's different than a tradition of spirituality that is associated strictly with reason. It's also different than a tradition of spirituality that is primarily associated with an institutional organization of some kind. And of course, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that either. We need our communities, we need our groups of people who are acting in will toward love, for others to be organized in some way, to make some sense about what they're doing. And so I know that there's a a lot of lamenting these days about organized religion, but I love the saying that goes, if you think organized religion is bad, you should try disorganized religion. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with organized expressions of faith. The trouble is, is that you cannot institutionalize your way into acts of love. See, just like you can't intellectualize your way into loving, you can't institutionalize your way into it either. So for that, for acts of love, for the will towards something good, you need that part of you to be enlivened, which has the ability to be decisive in a moment to make a decision for something that is loving. And Sola calls that the mystical tradition of Christianity, that part of Christianity that puts us into contact in an encounter with God in such a way that our will is empowered to act in love. Now, what we have here in this story from John's gospel in chapter 3 is John's way of illustrating that there was a moment... In Jesus's ministry, when Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus reveals to Nicodemus that the purposes of God were being revealed in this moment as a change or a shift or a transition from one mode of God's people to another. And so Nicodemus represents that old mode of God's people. It used to be before Christ came that God's people were identified with their ethnicity or they were identified with the practices of the temple. That's the old moment, the old model of the people of God. After Christ comes, of course, there is a new model of the people of God, and that new model is not associated with an ethnicity. Anybody of any ethnicity can now become a part of the people of God because of Christ. And it's no longer associated with the temple. In fact, 40 years after Jesus' time, that temple is utterly destroyed by the Romans, and God's people are scattered throughout the known world at that time. And so, God's people are no longer shaped and identified with a place. Now they are identified with something else. They are dispersed throughout the world. And so there are two modes of existence for the people of God. In between those two modes of existence, we have a moment of change. And that moment is when God moves by God's spirit to bring about something new. And Jesus says, and I think this is the crucial part to understand, that that moment that exists between the old and the new is a moment of rebirth. It's a moment when something new is created, something new is born, but crucially, we are not able to bring that about by ourselves. However much effort, however much practice we bring to recognizing that new birth, it is the spirit of God that is making it happen. And so our decision, that moment when we enact our will to join with what God is doing, is simply a decision about whether to join with the movement of God's Spirit or not. And I don't have to tell you that the history of religion is the history of institutions that have refused to join in that moment with the new move that the Spirit of God is bringing about. Now, this story, this sort of illustration that Jesus brings to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 probably reminds you of those moments in your life. Those moments in your life when you were existing in an old way, right, And then there was a kind of new birth. The Spirit of God came to you in a fresh way, and then a new you was born. And that's usually how we read this passage. We talk about being born again as Christians as a way of recognizing that moment when we cooperated with the move of God in our lives and a new person was born. And that, of course, is true. It's also true that these moments of newness, these moments of rebirth, these moments when the Spirit of God is uncontrollably doing whatever the Spirit of God wants to do, those those moments don't just happen once in our lives, they happen over and over and over again throughout our lives. And in that sense, we have the opportunity as followers of Christ to learn to recognize those moments of birth again and again and again in our lives. But even more than that, those moments of birth don't just happen for individuals. Those moments of newness, those moments of rebirth happen for entire groups of people. They happen for entire families like they did for Cornelius in the book of Acts. They happen for entire groups of people like they do for the Gentiles who are now entered into the kingdom of God because they respond to that spirit of God. They happen for entire cultures and entire societies. And we've seen that in the history of the church. As God's spirit was doing something new in the church at a new time and bringing people into new expressions, of what it means to follow God, and bringing new people into fellowship with God. We see that throughout human history. And I think that now, at this time, in our history as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary is another one of those times. And not just for us. I think that God is doing something fresh and new in our country, in our culture, and one of the ways that I suspect that God is doing a new thing right now is because there are more people than ever who are walking away from their churches. Now that might sound counterintuitive to say God is doing a new thing because all these people are leaving, but I think that's exactly what's happening and you might know this. You might know for example that in the United States right now that the fastest growing group of religious demographics in the United States are those people who on their census form, when the census asks them what religious tradition they identify with, they mark the box that says none. That group of people, the group of people who don't identify with any religious tradition, they're not only the fastest growing group of of religious demographics in the United States, they're not now the single largest group of people in the United States. And those people who mark none on their census form, they're not just people who don't believe in God anymore, although some of them are. They're not just people who are atheists or or agnostics, although some of them are. Crucially, a massive number of them, a a rapidly growing number of them, are people who still love Christ. They long after Jesus, but they no longer identify with their church or their church traditions. I can't tell you how many people like this I hear from on a weekly basis. Almost every day now at this point, because of everything that's going on in our country, Almost every day, I hear from people that I have known as a pastor over the past 20 years who write to me and say, can you find me a church where I live all the way across the country because I can no longer stand to go to the church that I'm a part of and I can't find one that's any different in my area. They're asking me to try to help them to find a place to worship that will allow them to worship in good conscience. And the reason for this is that so much of American Christianity today is complicit with the kinds of things that Jesus specifically taught against. Let me share a couple of quotes from you from people who have reached out to me in the last several weeks. One of them is a person who is the child of a leader, in one of the churches that I pastored in, this was a a long standing leader in the church, and this person was raised in the church, believed in Christ, became a Christian, was baptized, and just recently shared with me on Facebook uh, this. Here's what they said The way Christians have acted during Trump's presidency has completely turned me away from Christianity. Now, I share that quote not because. Uh, I want you to vote Republican or Democrat. It's not my job to tell you how to vote at all. I share that quote with you because I want you to understand that there is so much disillusionment with the way that churches have aligned themselves politically that people are walking away from church and in many cases walking away from their faith entirely. Another person who wrote to me asking me to help them find a church on the East Coast where they could worship wrote to me and said this, it is so incredibly disheartening to be surrounded by believers who prioritize the quote unquote sin of homosexuality more than the hundreds of thousands of people who cannot afford their next meal, don't have equal rights, don't have housing, and don't have health care. These are people who are not falling away from the church because they are sinning. These are people who are falling away from the church because they are falling toward God. They are longing for churches that represent the Jesus that they were taught about in Sunday school, the Jesus who cares about the poor, who cares about the hungry, who cares about the immigrants and the strangers and the marginalized, who cares about people who are brutalized by abuses of power. This is the Jesus that they're longing for. And friends, they are not finding that Jesus in the churches in their towns. And so I ask you, And this is the question that I will ask throughout this entire series. Why would these people still go to church? Now, my answer to that question is pretty straightforward. The only way that they or anybody else will still go to church is if the church is going where God is going. If the church is doing what God is doing. And to the extent that we at the Oceanside Sanctuary are going where God is going, to the extent that we are doing what God is doing, to the extent that we allow the Spirit of God to enliven our will and to go with that Spirit wherever it might go, to the extent that we have the courage to do that is the extent to which we will be able to partner with God and create a space where people like this can worship and learn to love. My invitation to you today is that you would open your hearts and open your minds as we move through this series over the next several weeks, because we are going to be exploring what it looks like when the church is doing just that. What does it look like when the church is courageously and boldly going and doing whatever the Spirit of God is doing? And I want to invite you today in the comments to just answer this question for Uh, those of you who uh, engage with each other online in the comments on YouTube or Facebook, my question to you very simply is this. When you look out into the community, when you look in your neighborhood or at your workplace or your school or when you look at Oceanside or wherever it is that you live, what do you see the Spirit of God doing? What are those good things, those peacemaking things, those righteousness-producing things that are cropping up in your community? And when you look at them, you say, well, I don't know if that's Christian, I don't know if that's a church, but it really is good. And the answer to that is probably that God is in that somewhere. And we as a church simply need to recognize it, bless it, and partner with it in whatever way that we can. So I want to encourage you to answer that question. Where are you seeing the Spirit of God at work in your community around you? Why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer and then ask the Lord to go with us Uh, not only this week, but also as we enter into this series and try to discern for ourselves as a church where God might be leading us in the coming years. God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather, for us to open up uh, your passages of scripture, for them to challenge us, to enliven us, and to encourage us as we seek to move forward and partner with whatever it is that you're doing in our community. As we do this I ask God that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might be able to move confident that you are leading us in whatever direction we're going. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Hey, everybody. If you are new to the Oceanside Sanctuary, we would love to connect with you. Fill out the connect form at oceansidesanctuary.org backslash connect and let us know a little bit about uh, a little bit more about yourselves and how we can get to know you better. We're in the process of defining our mission statement for the next 3 years and we need your input. During this time you're invited to offer and give us your input into what values, vision, mission and priorities should guide our efforts through 2023. Two more sessions left. The first one is right after church today at 10:15 a.m and the next one's on Wednesday, September 30th at 6.30 p.m. Just type in bit.ly backslash O-S-C listen and you will be taken there. We're looking for a couple key volunteers. The first one's for Sarah's Hope Pantry and the second one is for our worship team. For Sarah's Hope Pantry, we're looking for someone who is able to oversee the pantry from time to time. Uh, you will be thoroughly trained and taught how to do it. For the worship team, we are specifically looking for a rhythm guitar player, someone who has experience playing with others. You can message us on Facebook, or you can reach out to us via the OceansideSanctuary.org/backslash/connect portion of the website if you would like to volunteer. Uh, we have just launched our Faith Votes for 2023 campaign, where as a church, we are doing three things. Number one, we're pledging to be a 100% voting congregation. Number two, uh, we want to learn about the voting process so all our voices can be heard here in the community. Uh, and number three, we want to meet the candidates and understand their positions on issues that matter to our faith. Our, mayoral, our May oral candidate forum will be happening October the 12th at 645 p.m. This is your chance to get to know our local candidates and ask them questions directly during this forum. We do not advocate for certain political parties or candidates, but we do want you to be informed. For more details, you can visit theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash calendar. And lastly, we are a non-profit 501c3 and we rely on donations from people just like you. If you believe in our mission and what we are doing here, please make a gift. And that is as simple as going to the oceansidesanctuary.org backslash give portion of the website. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a great week. Continue to stay safe and healthy.